Hey, welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and joining me is my co-host and also the key element in my supply chain. My name is Jordan Crook. Thanks for having me again every week. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for making sure... Everything arrives on know, time. Yeah, that the product comes off the the uh, production line <laughs> as intended, right? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, high quality. Uh, <laughs> we're making allusions to supply chain and to material sourcing because our host or our guest this week, our host is us, as I just explained. Yeah. Our guest this week <laughs> is Megan O'Connor, who is the co-founder and CEO of Endcycle. Endcycle is somebody that we actually encountered recently at TechCrunch at Disrupt. They were the runner-up in our Disrupt Battlefield competition at this past Disrupt in September. Yeah. So very exciting to have her here. And it's a super cool subject. It's a deep tech startup. Jordan, what did you think about our chat with Megan? I think like in classic Jordan fashion, I really perked up and started paying attention when she talked about how we would no longer be able to do anything that we like to do if we don't solve essentially like a materials shortage for things like batteries. Yeah. So that definitely got my attention. And then I also love, I have a like thing for battlefield runner-ups just because they tend to be really successful. That's right. They get the hunger better than the winner. So then they go and do better than everybody They go out else. and do better. Yeah. They're like, they like have a chip on their shoulder forever. Yeah. So those two things combined really got me listening. And I, I think Megan's pretty cool in general. She's like fun, fun to talk to. She made a lot of like deep tech sciencey stuff more relatable. Yeah. I think she's awesome to explain this stuff. And, you know, the subject is kind of like abstract, but also something that we encounter every day. So basically what Anthencle does is they recover materials from existing sources. So it could be spent batteries electronics and those materials are the base metals and things that we need that are crucial to building more of these in future right and so this is stuff that typically is mined elsewhere or even if it's mined in the u.s it's refined elsewhere to bring it to like the usable form that we need for our electronics production and then brought back and what most people don't probably realize is that not only is it much better ecologically to recycle that stuff, but it's also like in short supply kind of on the global stage and it's limited supply. So we need to get it back. So what Encycle is doing is introducing a new process that can recover those. And they can also create new refined materials out of ore in a new way that hasn't been done possible previously. Really, really exciting stuff and could dramatically change the supply line in ways that are crucial for the U.S. and the world at large, actually. Yeah, it was a great conversation. If you guys want to also listen to it, we could do that like right now. Here we go. Hi, Megan. Hi. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It hasn't been that long. Well, we didn't interact at Disrupt, but I saw you at Disrupt presenting Endcycle during the Battlefield competition. And you walked away. I mean, I noticed I went to your site and it has down at the bottom, it has like a banner that was Disrupt second place. And I was like... Yeah. Second place, it makes the sound so, but it was actually... It's it, a runner-up. Runner-up is even better, I feel like, but <laughs> winner in my heart. No, I can't. I'm not allowed to say that contractually. Well, Megan, <laughs> you know you know the story, right, of people who come as runner-up and disrupt Battlefield. They have historically been more successful than our winners. 
Well, that's, that's exciting. True. That's exciting. Cloud, uh, Cloudflare is a runner-up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm proud to be runner-up, I should say. It was a great group of companies pitching this year. So I was excited to just, you know, be in the top five. Nice. Yeah. So do you want to give our listeners, in case they missed that, although they should go back and watch it if they have, but yeah, give us a rundown on Insightcle and a little bit about the history behind the company. Sure, sure. So overall, Encycle's mission is to enable a very secure green supply of all the critical minerals that are going to be needed for the energy transition. So I'm talking about materials like cobalt, nickel, manganese, the main materials you find in lithium-ion batteries that power all the clean energy technologies You know that will get us to full electrification. So we've actually developed a new refining technology called electro extraction, which is a much greener alternative to the traditional refining techniques out there today that are called hydro and pyrometallurgy. And so we're really excited to bring this new technology to the market. And we actually developed this technology over 10 years ago. So my yeah. co-founder, Chad Vesitas, was a professor at Harvard University for many years, developed the technology there with some other students for different applications. I came across it in uh, about 2014. And that's really around the same time that I was becoming really passionate about circular economy, electronics, recycling in general, and, you know, really asked the question of why hasn't anyone figured out a way to recycle all of these great materials like spent lithium-ion batteries and e-waste in general to create a new secure supply of all these materials that were at really high risk of having a supply shortage over. Right. And so from there, I worked on this technology for my PhD, spun it for metals recycling, and started the company about the day after I defended in 2017. Wow. That's amazing. So I think there's a bunch of stuff that you raised there that I think people are maybe not even super aware of. When we recycle our electronics now, which I think, uh, you know, people who are diligent and dutiful probably do do that. Maybe drop them off at Best Buy or one of the places where they recycle them for free, right? But like, what happens there? Because I think the assumption is a lot of that is being saved and reused, but it sounds like not the case probably, right? Not the case at all. So worldwide, there's less than 5% of lithium-ion batteries if we take, you know, one subset of electronics waste that is actually recycled today. And the electronics recyclers that we have here in North America, or at least in the United States, you know, you can be electronics recycler legally as long as you collect the materials and then you're allowed to safely ship it you know, mostly overseas, right? So that's what mm. they're legally allowed to do. And you can call yourself a recycler. You know, a lot of it still ends up in a landfill, unfortunately, or is recycled in illegal uh, ways overseas. So what we're trying to do is try to keep that material over here and truly chemically recycle it back down to the individual metal components so that they can be directly put back into the manufacturing streams here in the States. Right. Nice. Yeah. So that's crazy, though. The definition of recycle is essentially just like until it's out of our purview. And then it's exactly. like, great, it's on to another cycle. The cycle being whatever, we don't give a shit. Exactly. Sadly, yes. Wow. Yeah, that's, I don't mean to laugh. I mean, that's, that is awful. But like, I also want to hear more about the process, like the actual thing that you develop, because you know, you hear about one company that I think we've covered a lot and that maybe gets a lot more attention because of the pedigree of the founders is Redwood Materials, right? So you got J.B. Strabell, co-founder of Tesla, former CTO of Tesla, and he has a recycling concern as well. And they also are looking to reuse and put back into the ecosystem kind of materials, specifically for, for spent batteries, I think, right? But That's right. so how, what is your process? How is it different than perhaps what they are doing? You mentioned a little bit about how it's different about other, other uh, methods, but can you go into a bit more detail about that? Absolutely. So I'll even take a step back from there. And there's really, mm. you know, a couple big issues across, you know, the recycling sector in general, right? There's the first one is consumers even bringing back their devices. You mentioned before, there's a couple of folks that know where to bring them, who to bring them to, not to throw them in the trash that goes to the general landfill. 
lot of people don't, right? Even my yeah. parents did not know what to do with all their old phones. So I think step one is right, educating and getting more incentives in place for people to bring back their electronics. And there's a lot of companies trying to solve that. Redwood Materials and there's folks like Lifecycle and the other big startups in the space are working on logistics. How do we get these batteries to a place that they can be recycled safely? Mm. So Redwood has you know, done a great job, I think, of setting up their facility in Nevada and really coming up with a streamlined way of sort of filling in a lot of the supply chain gaps that we need here in the States. One of them being collection of these batteries, processing these batteries, and then actually making them back into materials that go into a cathode, right? So they've just announced they're going to do, you know, sort of all those steps. But what they're really doing right now is logistics, right? Getting all these batteries in one place. What they're not doing is innovating on the way you chemically recycle materials. So they're using the very traditional hydro pyrometallurgical techniques that have been around in the mining space for a very long time, think, you know, Mm. 50 years or so. And so what we're doing is actually innovating on that one single step. So we don't see redwood materials as a competitor. We actually see them as a potential partner of ours because we can help enhance and significantly reduce the carbon footprint of how they chemically recycle these materials into the metals that would then go into their cathodes. Cool. Yeah. So then you mentioned like that this process was originally developed like 10 years ago by your co-founder and you yourself, you're a Yale grad, right? So Yale grad somehow connects with Harvard grad. Aren't you enemies? I don't know anything about American school systems. (laughs) Maybe Jordan can jump in here. Yeah, no, I don't think that they're uh, proper enemies. (laughs) I mean, if I, with my specific analysis of it, it would just be that they're, they're better than everyone else. (laughs) <laughs> both, I, both. <laughs> I would agree with that. Um, so I'm not actually a formal Yale grad. So I actually got my uh, degree from Duke, but I was a visiting student at Yale when I developed the technology. So I have both affiliations, although not a formal degree from there. But yes, Harvard and Yale, you always, there's the big right football game that everybody goes to. So I did attend. It is fun to see the two schools going at it over football. But yeah, so my co-founder developed it over 10 years ago. I took it while I was at Yale, flipped it for metals recycling. Okay, cool. And was this, was it always kind of your passion or like, how did you decide like, oh, this is, this is the way that I want to orient my skills and my education and, you know, my expertise? Yeah. So I've always been passionate about the environment in general. I just really didn't know where I wanted to direct my energy. So actually in undergrad, I was a chemistry major and started off, you know, in an environmental chemistry lab working on all sorts of things like how Teflon is removed from Teflon pans and actually sticks to and binds to the proteins in your body. That was really right. cool, but I wanted to do research that had a much shorter term impact. So I wanted to work on much larger scale projects. So I went to get my PhD in environmental engineering, again, very environmentally focused, still did some chemistry, but at a much larger scale and was working in a bunch of you know other projects in the oil and gas industry, wasn't super passionate about anything there. And around the same time that I had met Chad, my co-founder from Harvard, I was actually in the hallway with some professors at Yale and they were talking about this green electronics summit that they were about to host in a couple of weeks time. And they had invited some folks from Apple, Dell, Intel, Samsung, really the big, you know, electronics and semiconductor Mm -hmm. manufacturers you can think of to Yale to help direct this specific center's research over the next five years, right, to talk about the sustainability issues they saw at a corporate level. This was very much close to students and other professors. It was really meant to be a private meeting for these folks. But I was really determined as I had just recently started reading literature about circular economy, electronics waste, we had really no, you know, way to solve that. So I had to be in this meeting. So I Mm. literally banged down this professor's door for three weeks straight until he finally let me in. And the only way he let me in was as a scribe. And I wasn't even allowed to bring my laptop. (laughs) It was a completely, you know, everything was top secret. So I sat there taking notes by hand for nine hours, but it was totally worth it to just be a fly on the wall and listen because it was customer discovery before I knew what customer discovery was, right? They were all talking about the real issues that they saw coming down the pipeline 
five to 10 years, right? And this was back in 2015. So with the issues they'd be having today and the two things that kept coming up over and over again, and I just remember like circling them in my notebook, like this is a big deal was waste management, right? Even, you know, folks like Apple admitted, like they push iPhones on people every single year, right? They want you to buy Yeah, the they new want one. you to upgrade and get right. the new one. Right, yeah. exactly. So what are they going to do with all these phones once they come off, right? I mean, they have incentive buyback programs and things, but they still don't do anything with those phones. Like they have some fraction of recycled content, but they're not nearly as recyclable as, as they say they are. And then the other big issue was supply chain management, right? They saw the supply chain issues coming, right? That we're going to have a significant shortage of cobalt. We're going to have a significant shortage of nickel. And that's only going to continue to grow as EVs become more prevalent, right? Because EVs use the same type of batteries as your cell phone does, as your smartwatch. Or your laptop, yeah. Everything that is electrified has some type of battery in it, right? And it's usually a lithium-ion battery. They all use cobalt. They all use nickel. And so there's just going to be this massive shortage. And so they were like, how are we going to protect our own supply chain, you know, while these other companies are coming into the space with massive EVs that, you know, have 10x the amount of cobalt, if not more in them. And so yeah, and, and they're fixed pools, right? Like those are not renewable resources. Like once once it's gone, it's gone. That's right. There's really no, at the time, there was no technology that could essentially recycle it back into sort of the yeah. supply chain. And so I walked to that meeting thinking like, how has nobody developed a solution that could, A, recycle anything to get it back into the supply chain, right? Try to try and solve both problems, you know, sort of with one stone, if you want to say that. And then, or, and make it economical, right? So right. nobody had developed, there's recycling, right? But everyone kept seeing dollar signs and not in the good way, right? And not that it was going to make them money, but that it was going to be too expensive to use. That same day, I walked out of that meeting into my advisor's office. I said, I really want to develop a solution for this. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I just met this Chad guy and he has this really awesome technology that you know, I think we could probably use for metals recycling. Again, don't know if it's going to work, but could I try it? She was like, yes, if you want to. She was an awesome advisor, was very supportive of this, but was like, you probably won't graduate on time. <laughs> You've already been here for three years. Um, and then I was like, that's fine. I will take that risk. I don't know if my husband was excited that I took that risk, but, you know, so I went off and, you know, I, I started working with Chad and you know, approached him and said, hey, can I work on this for metals recycling? I think this could really be something. And he had sort of been waiting for a student to commercialize it. So we we went off and, and started doing that. Nice. Now, what about the direction? Did Chad, was that something that, was he surprised by that, that you thought they could apply in this particular area? Or what did he think about that? path to commercialization. He had actually, he had one student that did a little bit of work with more metal remediation. So trying to clean up metals out of the environment. And so he had already had seen some really encouraging results at a very preliminary level for removing metals in general, but not necessarily making metal products, right? Just removing mm. the sort of contaminant levels that were in different wastewaters around the world. Cool. Now, this is maybe a separate question, but is that a path to, can you eventually remove the waste metals and then make them into usable material? Absolutely. So we're actually, we're already going down that path with a lot of tailings ponds. So the waste metal ponds that come out from mining. So that's a form of waste remediation that we're trying to go after because there's up to 30% of the valuable metals that come out of mines end up in these waste ponds that just sit there for yeah. decades. And if you're, if listeners, if you're not familiar, like just go Google tailings ponds and it's going to, it's going to stick with you. It'll be a memorable <laughs> Google <laughs> image search, right? It'll definitely stick with you for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing, but like it, it is a problem and you I know, so I, I worked at Apple and I know their level of secrecy, right? It's not something that they're ever going to want to talk about. In a, in a, so I understand the, the challenge to get into that meeting and be in that room is immense, especially when it's like not just them, but a bunch of their peers and competitors who are also equally conservative, right? Mm -hmm. But then you think about the other side and, you know, this is very fresh to mind because we've just gone through two Apple events and now they have a slide, at least one slide, <laughs> 
in every one of their device presentations that talks about their uh, material sourcing and talks about how what percentage of the devices the supply comes from like renewable sources, right? So it's obviously something that now has become a marketing temple in addition to something. But to your point, right, it probably is that way kind of coincidentally or because, I mean, it, it matches with the ethos of their customer now as their customer has evolved. But like initially it was because hey, this is not sustainable from a P&L standpoint. In terms of our balance sheet, we cannot keep going this way because it will end badly for us, right? Yeah, and, and you see other companies doing this too, right? I mean, Elon Musk has come out and said, like, I want sustainable nickel. Who can provide me with right. that? Yeah. Right, and so he he's trying to buy up supply because everybody sees these issues coming now. And I think too, like you said, consumers are starting to care about this. Yeah. They're starting to care about where their materials come from and don't want cobalt that comes from a mine, you know, that was dug up by a child over in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I think, you know, a lot more transparency and at least supply chain tracking will start to happen. Yeah. And and tip to tail, right? Instead of like the usual, like, well, beyond the shores, it's sort of like outside of our purview, right? Like that's another thing that's a trend. No, we want to see the whole thing all the way down. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And now I recycle my things. Jordan probably doesn't believe me, but I do ethically. Is that something (laughs) that they do in Canada? Yeah, I noticed that you haven't mentioned Canada yet, so I was just wondering when that would happen. <laughs> I don't know how Canada. I don't know how Canada's record is particularly good on this one. I don't know. We're advocating. We want this pipeline to continue, right? And Biden's like, no more pipelines, and we're like, we need those pipelines because we don't. <laughs> there's nothing else for the we have the, no the economy of the middle of our country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I don't know. Maybe Megan could tell me more about how Canada is on on metal production and ethical medical reuse and recycling export. Pop Do you quiz, know, have any information Megan. on that? <laughs> there are some pretty big startups coming out of Canada, I would say, hmm. in the battery recycling space. So Lifecycle, as well as a couple of refineries that are starting to try and get back up and running to help supply at least a fraction of the critical minerals we'll need. So I, I, they're getting there. We're, we're, I think North America in general is is behind the curve a little bit, but you know we're we're trying to catch up. So that's interesting. So who's ahead of the curve? Like I imagine China probably realized this much more quickly because things become much more urgent when you have one billion consumers as opposed to a few hundred million or whatever, right? Yeah, I would say. I mean, Europe, right? I feel like mm. in terms of regulations and pushing, you know, innovation to solve a lot of these issues, they're I've seen them ahead of the curve for a lot of this. I mean, they put in some pretty strict or aggressive, I should say, goals in mind for the percent of e-waste that needs to be recycled by twenty five. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but you can, you know, look them up online yeah. and, and they're they're pretty aggressive with and I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think we need to get the government needs to push us to get to that direction. I think industry is really driving it here, but I think you'll quickly start to see, and we've already started to see that, right? I mean, the Biden administration pushed out the critical minerals supply document back out. I think it was in June of, of their whole plan to, to push out money in the infrastructure bill and things like that. So we're eagerly watching all of those things happen over the next couple of months. You're starting to see more momentum behind this movement. And I, one other thing about kind of like primary order level solutions, right? So like, what about battery alternatives? Because once in a while you see headlines about like, well, maybe this alternative technology being developed in the lab is like a more sustainable battery path forward or whatever. But how does that fit into your plan? Do you Are there any really promising alternatives out there that are more sustainable at a base level? And do you think that that 
could pose a threat to end cycle in future? Or how do you think about those things? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And we get that one a lot of, do you see your business, you know, declining at all when LFP or higher nickel content battery comes on? The answer is no. All right, we're, we're 10 years behind any change in cathode chemistry, if you will, or battery mm-hmm. chemistry change, because right, we have to wait for the EVs to come off the road. So we're now just seeing the EVs that were manufactured in maybe 2011, 2012, coming to us as spent batteries, right? So we have to wait like, almost a decade given the the lifetime, the expected lifetime of these EVs and even consumer electronics are two, three years at best mm-hmm. to get them back. So we have a while before we'll actually see any of that change. I haven't seen anything personally that I gets me really excited about a change in chemistry. I still think we're going to have a lot of nickel, even if we can reduce the amount of cobalt mm-hmm. in EVs. We are still going to have a very high nickel content and nickel is just as critical as cobalt is in terms of supply chain risk and, and issues along with that. In consumer electronics, right, LCO, which is the very standard cathode material they use, has a very high content of cobalt and I don't see that going away anytime soon. So at least in the electronic sector, I don't foresee the chemistry changing much. There probably will be a, a move to higher nickel content in EVs, but you know, still a very critical mineral and something that Encycle recycles and, and processes. So we're not, in, I should say, even taking a step back. Batteries is a, a very big focus for us, but we're actually also looking at a number of the other critical minerals on the list, like the rare earth metals, vanadium, things like that, that will come from all sorts of different feedstocks around the U.S., whether it's raw ore or other types of scrap. Okay, so it doesn't matter what the mix is, like you're always going to have a role, even if it shifts and you can kind of like go with the flow, I guess. That's right. That's right. We don't consider ourselves a battery recycler. We like to say we're a metals processing technology, really trying to close the big gaps in the supply chain here to keep as many of the critical minerals here as we can to get back into manufacturing and to provide a solution for a lot of the issues and strains that we have. Yeah. And I mean, like global trade and global political issues also means like it's more important than ever, right? Like people are looking to same source because it's like, well, you know, some of the relationships that perhaps we had previously are not as great as they once were. <laughs> so it's it's much better to be self-reliant. And I mean, I don't think that applies just in the U.S., right? So the business is probably the same internationally. So that's right. That's it. right. A lot of countries are feeling the strain of being 100% reliant on some other countries that control a lot of the supply chain. Like China controls over 90% of the rare earth refining. They control a, a wide or a large percentage, I should say, of the cobalt refining. Uh, the mining doesn't have in there, but they control the refining of it. So it's really the refining capacity that the U.S. is lacking. Because even if we mine the material here, we still don't have the refining capacity. So we still hmm. have to ship it, even if it's our own ore, uh, which is crazy to think about. So there's just... Yeah huge bottleneck in terms of where our refining capacity is around the world. And like you said, we're not the only country feeling that. And so there's a big push for Europe, the United States, Canada to really move in the direction of getting our own refining capacity. And that's exactly what Encycle is trying to do is trying to create very micro sized refineries to put all around the States, all around Canada, around Europe to try and refine as much material. Again, we don't care if it's end of life scrap, we can take scrap, we can take ore, you know, we can take mine tailings, you know, we're trying to get access to any kind of feedstock we can to try and just get the amount of materials we need. Because even if we were to recycle 100% of lithium ion batteries that are available in 2030, it would be a small fraction, like near 10% of what we actually need in terms of demand. So wow. we need to find other sources, we need to start mining sustainably, and we need new technologies to do that, right? We can't continue to rely on the dirty hydro and pyro we've been using forever. So I'm curious, Megan, about like, like how you communicate kind of end cycle mission, right? Because you can go super, super specific and get like super nerdy with people, right? And I'm sure there's, you know, like speaking to customers or even certain investors that works really well. 
But like, talk to me about like getting the layman on board, right? Like you don't want to fear monger and be like, oh, you'll never have a phone again because we're going to run out of batteries. Right. But that kind of is like the nuts and bolts of it. Like talk to me about how you kind of hone that message. Yeah. I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's, I don't want to instill fear, but if we don't find a new supply of these critical minerals, we will not have the access to technologies like we have say we will not be able to get a new phone every every year we will not be able to get our you know apple watches smart watches whatever brand you want to say right we just won't have all these fancy electronic devices we won't have evs or at least we won't have you know sort of the expansion of evs that we need right to really meet our climate change goals and so i think that's really what the scary thing is is it's not even like the consumer electronic side of it it's all of these technologies that we need to transition to a greener, cleaner economy rely on these materials. And if we don't have these materials or sort of like the building blocks, I like to say, of the clean energy economy, we won't be able to transition nearly as fast as we need to to meet the climate goals that the world has set. Um, so I try to you know, instill that into everyone I talk to is that it's, it's not necessarily about all of these political things. Yes, I th- it's a big national security issue, but it really comes down to like the world will not be able to transition over if we can't get the building blocks that we need for wind turbines, solar panels, EVs, all of these great, great technologies that have been invented and, and developed over the past several decades to help us transition away from fossil fuels. We just won't be able to do it in, in nearly the time frame we need to. That's amazing because I think you think you get the impression that a lot of people believe that the lack of action and their movement there is like largely due to incentive or motivation, like especially on the part of large entrenched interests like oil and gas industry or whatever. Right. But like it sounds like even if they were like even if the, the willingness is there, it's like, well, I mean, we just can't do it. Like we just cannot source. There's a physical blocker of that part is missing from the equation. Right. Right. And I mean, that's I think that's what a big push from the administration is now is putting the investment that we never did. Right. I mean, if you look back, we never invested in sort of this age of technology to try and build out that refining capacity. So we just don't have any refining capacity here whatsoever, even if we had the materials here, which we do. We actually have cobalt and nickel in different mines across the states. Like there's a massive cobalt belt in Idaho. There's nickel across the Midwest. We just don't have the technologies or the refining capacity because, right, these old hydro and power facilities are hundreds of millions, like three, five hundred million, if not a billion dollars to invest and install. Wow. And we just we never did that. So we need to come up with new ways to to try and solve that issue. And Canada has some of the refining capacity that we need, but then the issue is shipping it. So shipping all of that heavy ore, you know, from, say, Idaho all the way up to northern Canada, it just is not economical. And so we need to figure out a way to refine it here locally. And that's really the pain point that Encycle is trying to solve is so that, you know, if we can mine the material here sustainably, right, reducing the carbon footprint, not using these harsh chemicals, you know, having something near those ore bodies to actually refine it into the metals that we can put right into manufacturing instead of having to worry about shipping it, you know, across the world. Yeah, and go Canada as well, I'd like to say. <laughs> well, I mean, we got it, but then we're too <laughs> too expensive, so it doesn't matter. Right? I, th- I guess it's good for us, for self-sustainability, but yeah, because that's like, I'll bet, and I this is, again, not my area of expertise, but I bet it's like, well, you could just ship it on a slow barge and then go somewhere where it's actually cheaper to refine and then come back. Like longer round trip, but much cheaper in the end, right? Yes. And we've talked to customers who do that. They would yeah. rather ship it to China than to, to have companies in Canada refine it because, yeah, you're right. It's cheaper. Yeah. Damn, that's in our standards of living. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's such a tricky. I think it's like one of those things where you, when we think about, especially over the course of our lifetimes, like you think about where I've, environmentalism has gone and come from, like it came from, and I'm probably dating myself a bit here, but like it was the three R's for like my generation. And there was not really any kind of like 
depth to that at all. It was just like, okay, I mean, reduce, reuse, recycle. Here's a slogan. Here's here's some like things you can do. Remember to put this in this bin instead of that. But like no serious rigor as to what happens after that or what do any of those things actually mean long term or long tail. And it sounds like that wasn't just like local to consumers. It sounds like that was a thing that everybody that we assumed was in charge of this and like had plans and were able to think about it. We're not really thinking about it, right? Like it was like the most basic steps of this were kind of forgotten and left to last minute. And now people like yourself are stepping in and saying, well, we need some drastic solutions to fix this instead. Right. I mean, I think you see greenwashing in a variety of industries, right? I mean, even plastic recycling, right? I mean, I think you feel good when you put plastic in a recycling bin, but the realistic, you know, look at it is that it doesn't get recycled, right? If it yeah. has any kind of residue on it, it has a sticker, right? That all sort of, you know, nixes it out of the recycling process because it's such an old, antiquated, you know, whatever other words you can think of, <laughs> synonyms for antiquated uh, process that they <laughs> use. It's, it's just not a very good process at all. And you see that in electronics recycling too, right? People felt good about dropping it in a bin at Best Buy and not worrying about where it went after that, where realistically it goes over to India or China and is dumped in a landfill. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, man. But see, I, what I like about this, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, it's a downer, but it's also, it's very motivating in that it's like truly existential, right? And that's like a thing that gets a lot of attention and like really, it wakes you up. Elon uses it to great effect. Elon Musk, I'm not going to use a first name. We're not a first name Who's basis, this like, Elon you speak of? <laughs> <laughs> but I think he uses it in a way that is ridiculous and probably like whatever. He's pursuing his things. We can debate the merits of them later on, but like, <laughs> I don't think... <laughs> Are you backing away from a fight? I don't think he's using them perhaps responsibly in the same way that you would use them in something like this, right? Like the industry is not nearly as flashy or as attractive or as interesting as like a fast car or a big rocket that goes to space or whatever. But like this is much more genuinely existential than any of the things that he's talking about. And that should be very motivating, right? I think it is now motivating. It took us a while to get to this point. And I've spoken to other people about the kind of like 2007, 2008 clean tech boom and how it seemed like that was a moment, but was not really. But this one feels like a real one. It feels genuine. It feels like people are actually getting the point across all the interests where you need the people to get the point. And that is a reason for hope. Do you share that impression or do you think there's still kind of like a lot of work to do there? No, I completely agree. I think right now it's definitely a movement. You see people truly understanding what needs to be done to get you know, to the goals that we've put in place for, for climate change and the clean energy economy and electrification, you know, whatever, you know, sort of word you want to put to that movement. But I really see a change even in the last 12 months of like, yes, it's, it's great. It's flashy. It's cool to have an electric vehicle, but these are all the things that need to be done to get us, you know, so everybody can have an EV. So everybody can have solar panels. So everybody can, you know, have a fully electric, clean, sustainable house. Right. So I think industry is pushing a lot of it. I think you're starting to see regulators and the administration get behind it and push the investment that's needed for companies like mine and, and everyone else that's trying to solve these issues, right? Because there's not, this is just one of many, as I mentioned, across the supply chain, you know, manufacturing being another big one that we need to move back here. So I completely agree. I think this is going to be uh, one for the books. I think you're going to see a lot of movement in the next couple of years following on to all this great stuff that's happening this year alone. Yeah. And do you do you find that when you go into conversations with investors, is it something that you don't really need to do a lot of convincing up front to be like, look, this is the state of it? And then is it more like, okay, let's focus on the business fundamentals? Or do you still have to do the kind of like, no, the problem is real. 
part of the discussion. No, so I think you're right. I, I haven't had to do much pitching in a sense of, of showing people why this is a problem. I think people get it. People understand it. So that's a very short part of my pitch. I only have, you know, if I look at my deck, right, outline, it's, it's a very short section because people understand, right? I think you have to point out where the specific pain points are in relation yeah. to North America in general. But they understand, like, yes, these materials are needed. There's a whole critical materials list that the Department of Energy and even the EU has put a lot of time and energy defining why they're critical in the timeframes that we actually need to, to solve these issues on. So it's not a hard pitch on my part to, to try and tell our story. Well, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> that's one easy part, right? I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are the hard parts when you go in? What's like? What's the most difficult part of a pitching end cycle specifically to, to investors? I think uh, in particular, just showing how we're different from the other big recyclers that are coming out. Like you asked earlier, like Redwood, right? I think yeah. uh, it takes time to dig down and see, you know, we're not trying to do the collection or the final processing. We're really a new way to chemically process the material. So we sort of fit in into their technology stack. So we're one piece of this, you know, grand puzzle. So once we dig in and try to really show them like how we can enhance what they're doing, not replace what they're doing, they start to understand. So I think that's that's really the the piece we need to dig in the most when we talk to, to new investors. Do you get a lot of people like VCs being like, no, I think you're a conflict with thing XYZ and our portfolio. And you're like, no, 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 we're, we're not <laughs> because we're different. We're over here. I know they have recycling in the name. <laughs> Right. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, but I think most of the time they give us at least the opportunity to, to dig into that and show them why we're different. But, but yeah, we do get a lot of comments about like, well, what about these two really large companies that have raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in discussions. Yeah. We have an MOU. Yeah. <laughs> what about hiring? Is hiring a challenge for you? Cause it's kind of like, you know, it's maybe an abstract part of the process for a lot of people, even though it's actually very tangible and practical when you get down to it. But is that a conversation that you're finding difficult for the specific type of talent you're getting? Like for you, it was like, oh, this is an obvious way for me to make impact short term. I imagine that's a big sell. But how does that go? I think hiring in general right now is really difficult across yeah. any industry. I think there's just a shortage of people who, who are available to work and, and want to switch jobs, especially here in Boston. It's a very competitive market right now. There's a lot of companies that got funded through COVID, which is great. I mean, not that I want any companies to go under, but there's no sort of recycling of talent in the space at the moment. So it's been really difficult just in a competitive space of, right, you know, we're a series A level startup. We can't offer the salaries that big corporations can. But I think once we sit them down and, you know, talk to them about, you know, our mission and where we fit into the supply chain, I think it really it hits home. And, and we've gotten a lot of really good people on the team who understand, you know, what we're trying to solve and sort of the big vision for the company, not just to be a battery recycler or, you know, a mine operator. We're really trying to solve this issue of critical mineral supply chain issues. So I think once they, and, and like we talked about, right, so sort of the big <laughs> existential issue you talked about, like, I think once they understand it at that level, they're like, oh, wow, like, this is needed, even if we're not the only ones to try and solve this. There's a lot of development that needs to be done in this space. Yeah. I mean, talk about a mission that I think most people can get behind. That's that's a great one, right? As opposed to like, I don't know, go sell more doodads. I'm thinking of my, <laughs> <laughs> my own past experience and what motivated me to join some of these companies. Yeah, I really think everybody should get a new doodad every year <laughs> was actually one that worked for me, but you know. It's close to my heart. I love new doodads. <laughs> Everyone does. I am I not any different. <laughs> I gotta get the uh, metal to keep getting those new doodads, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's a real question too. Like, is it? Do you think that there is work to be done on that side of the equation, or do you, do you, is that just kind of like a lost battle? Like, do are we in an age where people are just like, no, this is what I want. This is the kind of lifestyle I'm going to pursue, and I'm not going to forego that yearly update cycle or whatever it is for hot new gadget X, right? 
I think there's a lot of work to be done on that side, not just from the consumer, but also from the manufacturers, right? I mean, planned obsolescence is a real thing, right? They yeah. they want us to get a new phone or a new watch or you know any kind of electronic doodads that we get, right? On my iPad, I, I I'm I'm no different. I have all of the the gadgets right in front of me right now. So, um, <laughs> but I think there's a real movement for people to try and use any kind of material longer, whether it's an electronic device or a piece of clothing or anything that you have in your house or in your life in general. I think people are now starting to realize like we can't just go through these things every single year because the amount of waste generated is astronomical. I mean, it is mm. so large and it's so difficult to deal with. And you know, the story is starting to get out there like, oh, if we put this piece of plastic or this piece of clothing in the recycling bin, that doesn't necessarily mean it's recycled. So I think people are starting, like that veil has been sort of lifted, right? And they see what's behind the curtain. They're starting to realize like, oh, that's that's actually not being recycled. It's just ended yeah. up in a landfill. So I need to start doing better on my part and use less single-use plastic and things like that that would just end up in a landfill in a matter of weeks. I think you, you're starting to see movement in that direction, but I think we have a long way to go on sort of both sides. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually, so I just, I just upgraded, of course, my phone, my watch, a Mac, because <laughs> the new Macs came out. And I did do the trade-in on each one of those, right? Mm-hmm. So Apple now, very they're very good about the process of this, at least from the end user perspective. Like you say, oh, I want to do a trade-in. They immediately give you an assessed value. They work through partners. I don't actually know who their partner is in Canada, or I can't remember even in the US, but like, you know, they send you the box, which is essentially like their box that they use for new shipping. It's a very clever design and very minimal, although it does still use plastic in there, right? Like they have the one sheet of plastic to like pressure fit over the thing to protect it in transit. But it all seems so clean and efficient and well thought out that I find myself convinced that like, well, if this part of the thing is so designed, then that means that when I send this back, whatever happens after it is going to be equally well designed and thought out and efficient. And it sounds like that's like, there's been progress, but that's still probably not the case, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, who knows what Apple's doing behind the scenes, like you said, but we have not seen any evidence that true recycling is happening by them. They have partners and whatnot, but so what you're saying is their marketing scheme worked on you. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, for sure. But I think all companies are moving in that direction. And, and Apple is doing a great job of their marketing and trying to move in that direction. So, you know, we've seen, you know, Liam and Daisy, they're robots that can disassemble yep. phones and things like that. That's all really, really needed because that's one bottleneck. People, when I say this, I am completely serious of in battery recycling facilities today, people are manually disassembling phones and EV packs to get the batteries out, to get the actual cells out. So you can imagine when we have a lot more EVs alone, one woman working to disassemble a pack that takes her whole eight hour shift is not going to fly, right? We're going to have to figure out a way to automate that. So Apple is, is well in front of the curve on that one. And so I think, and and they're putting their money into the, like the manufacturing, like their partners, they're, they're funding that they're funding, like you develop the, you're going to develop the own the robot. We're going to pay for it. And they they can apply those learnings to other things. Right. Absolutely. And I think there it's transparency, right? If if we really want all industry to be able to do this and to, to make a difference, like Apple and every other company, right? It's not just Apple is going to have to be more transparent of how they're doing this, or at least be willing to partner with folks outside of just the Apple brand. So, yeah. And I bet they probably have like a lot of IP protections now that I even said that, like in place where it's like, well, if you just waived a bunch of those, like it would actually be much better for, for the overall problem. Right. Right. But you know, we've said a lot about Apple, but they're, I think they're doing a great job of really leading the charge of, uh, and I I think, I think a lot, you'll see a lot of companies follow suit. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I only cite them because they make a lot of claim. They are, they are more transparent than others about these things, so it's easier to bring them to my to to, yeah. to mind as an example, right? Absolutely. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think 
at that about is at, at the end of time here. I think we talked we talked a lot more about the solutions than about your kind of like personal experience with it. But I mean, it's just such a massive issue, and it's so. I think that it's important to bring those up because it's lost on a lot of people. Like I think you're talking about how the industry now kind of understands it better, but the average consumer, I think, doesn't have that kind of insight or knowledge into what's involved in these processes and what's needed to make sure that they're sustainable, right? And the sustainable thing is another, that's a word that's kind of devalued, right? We've almost sucked all of the color and energy out of the word sustainable, but it's meant very literally. Like you said, like maybe you won't have your gadget, like your new one. It's just, or maybe you won't have a car. Maybe there won't be EVs because it's not sustainable. Maybe we'll go back to an agrarian society. (laughs) I'm actually for that. Is that bad? I'm all in. I mean, I have no skills for that life, but I would be willing to learn just because I think it was better. All right. Well, that's our plan B. <laughs> uh, but hopefully end cycle succeeds with plan A uh, or helps us succeed at, plan a at least. That's the goal. Uh, that's the goal. Yeah. Um, thanks very much, Megan. It was, it was great to have you. It was great to talk to you. And congrats again. Mm-hmm. Really deserved honor from TechCrunch. And yeah, we hope to hear more from you in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on today. This was great. Jordan, how did you feel about that? I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like Whereas before I thought I was a responsible consumer. No, I didn't. I always knew I was an irresponsible consumer. You're the worst consumer. Megan made it clear that I'm a very irresponsible consumer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like always kind of a downer to talk about how like, just in general, right? Like recycling isn't actually recycling. Like nothing you do mm -hmm. really matters and blah, blah, blah. But it is exciting to talk to a company that's actually like, I hate to use the term game changing, but it really is right. Like a brand new way to do something that has never been discovered before that is more efficient, you know, better cost savings and more ecologically friendly. And I think what's interesting about companies like that, rare as they are, is that one, normally the bigger challenge is like, how do you turn the business side on? But the potential Mm -hmm. is huge, right? Because once you have that like one proprietary game changing thing, process, service, whatever it might be, what you can add on and layer on to that is kind of endless, right? Because you become the core, you become the center of gravity. I thought, you know, kind of a downer, kind of uplifting. I got a little bit of both, ended up net even. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that the the most depressing part about this conversation was that it's long overdue, but I think it's very optimistic in terms of what Megan has been able to do with EndCycle and like bringing the science to bear and taking a process that her co-founder created and realizing like, oh, this is something we can actually use for this purpose that is greatly needed and that people kind of have always known we needed, but just kind of hand wave away because there was easier, cheaper ways to do it before and people didn't take into account kind of like the long tail of what the impact of doing it that way was, right? So it's hopeful in that like she's all she's lacking is opportunity and time, right? And those things can in some ways be solved by money, which is why it's great that they're being funded and going out there and winning, well, nearly winning battlefield competitions. <laughs> I shouldn't say winning. Almost. Oh, yeah, yeah. Getting real close, which again, we said usually goes well for companies historically. So hopefully that'll be the case for Encycle too. Cool name. Also, we didn't really talk about the name, but I like the idea of like... <laughs> Oh, how many, like, recycled, but then it's like... To the nth, nth degree. To the nth degree. Yeah. Wow. For infinity. 
infinity and beyond. That's is infinity the, and nth the same thing? I can't. Can we let's move away from science? I think the <laughs> the audience has had enough. From these math. Terms, By the audience, I, I mean me. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's cool that they're doing this. I think that she talked about hiring and you know how it can be a challenge. I feel like it's a bit abstract, but like she said, once you realize what it is that the problem they're solving and kind of like how immediate the impact is of this. And I think the timelines are, you know, we didn't talk in very specific detail about it, but it's pretty crazy to start thinking about how quickly it might become the case that like, oh, maybe you can't get a new iPhone every year or whatever, right? Which I think now we're at a point where that will really start to wake people up more than anything else, right? A lot of people are so used to those things being refreshed and being new and being novel. And then to take that away and just say physically it's not possible because we don't have the materials anymore, that would wake people up real quick and be a real kick in the pants, right? So Yeah, and I'm ready to go live on the farm. So, like, let's go. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, we could just solve it the other way, which is, like, don't stop. worry about it. Yeah, stop. We got this wood and this dirt. We'll just make stuff out of wood and dirt. Dirt wood. wood is also... Dirt wood... <laughs> Dirtwood Farms. Join me at Dirtwood Farms where we will be growing our own tomatoes. Thank you. That's a good startup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dirtwood. <laughs> I think we got to remember that one. All right. I think that's plenty, don't you? <laughs> I think so, too. So <laughs> please remember to rate and review us and, uh, positively. <laughs> remember, you're rating or reviewing found, not Dirtwood Farms. Not that Dirtwood hasn't Farms. launched yet. But you can share your thoughts about that with us via voicemail or email. Voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, please fill out our listener survey. And again, don't let this immediate thing we've just been talking about sway you when you go to this. <laughs> Think about your general overall positive yeah. impressions of the show. And go to bit.ly, that's bit.ly slash found listener survey, all one word. And it would be great if you could fill that out for us. We'd really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Dale Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kukarni and edited by Kel Keller, and Maggie Stamets is our associate producer. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us at 510-936-1618 and leave us a voicemail. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to go ahead and fill out our listener survey at bit.ly. That's bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.